0: Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James B. and Jeff Myers. Brian Motz, as usual, is in the background, and he'll be recording and editing everything for you to get it out to our various outlets for our podcast. Uh, as I mentioned last week, we are uh, we have released, by the time this goes out, I, we will have released a new Theopolis app. It'll be available on your app store. If you downloaded the earlier app, this should replace that and up, update it. If you haven't downloaded the earlier app, then go to your app store and download it. It uh, has a lot more Theopolis material on it. Uh, it has a paywall that uh, and behind the paywall, there's uh, there's uh, a great deal of material. There's uh, recordings of courses that we've done at Theopolis, recordings of old B- biblical horizons, conferences, uh, our podcasts will be organized neatly together in by topic, uh, and video series will be organized neatly together by topic. That's all behind a paywall that costs seven dollars a month, 70 dollars a year. So there's convenience, but there's also a great deal more material behind the paywall that uh, you wouldn't be able to get otherwise. There's also a lot of free stuff. so if you if you don't feel like you can pay, at least download the app and make use of the, the free material that's there. Uh, and uh, we hope that we hope you enjoy the app. It's it looks very it looks very good and uh, I think it's going to be an, a great blessing uh, to Theopolis and I hope it'll be a blessing to you. We are at the beginning of a series of podcasts on the book of Deuteronomy, and we've covered the first chapter and a chunk of the second chapter. We're beginning today toward the end of chapter two, beginning in verse 26, and then going to try to cover the rest of chapter two and chapter three in this episode. And as I mentioned last time, Deuteronomy two and three work together. They hang together as a series of episodes. There's a There's a logic in the way the narrative works. The Lord is uh, sending Israel from Mount Seir, where they around the Edomite territory, where they've been circling for 38 years. Now they're on their way north, moving from south to north, uh, and as they go, they're encountering various peoples. Some of those peoples already possess land that the Lord has given them, and the Lord is not going to give Israel that land that He's already gifted to other peoples. Uh, he's given land to the Edomites. He's given land to the Moabites. He's given land to the Ammonites. Those are all peoples related to Israel, and Israel is not going to inherit any of that land. And so the progress first moves through those three, uh, those three territories, uh, and the encounters with those three people, as Moses tells it in Deuteronomy, at least, are peaceful without any kind of friction or tension. We know from Numbers that there is some tension with the uh, Edomites and uh, in. Um, at, in uh, uh, in in that progress, uh, in that northward progress. Uh, finally, now that they've crossed over the Arnon, the Brook of the Arnon, the Wadi of the Arnon, they're in the territory of the two kings of the uh, of the Amorites, and these two kings are going to be the two first kings that they encounter in battle. So they have three peaceful encounters, and now they're going to encounter Sihon, king of Heshbon, and they're going to encounter Og, the king of Bashan. That's my one obligatory Og. That's two now one obligatory uh, guttural Og uh, for the sake of this episode. They're going to encounter those and they're going to battle those. Uh, they're conquering the east side of the Jordan, the Transjordan territory, and that territory is then going to be distributed. You have an account of the conquest of Sihon and then a paired a parent account of the, a much shorter but paired account of the conquest of Og and his territories as a kind of second witness that the Lord is in fact giving them the land. Uh, one thing from last the section we covered last time that I wanted to highlight that I think sets a context for what's going to happen next, there are two places in chapter 2 prior to verse 26 where Moses exhorts the people to arise. Uh, verse 14, arise, sorry, 13, arise and cross over the Zered. Uh So we cross over the Ruk Zered, And then verse 24, arise, set out, pass through the valley of the Arnon. They're again passing over a water boundary, the Arnon. Uh, we talked about those water boundaries last time, but what I'm fixing on here is the verb arise. I mean, that's get up and march. That's part of what it means. But uh, it it occurs to me that there's a, there's a theological resonance to that, a theological richness to that term. It's not merely that they're rising from a settled position and they're getting ready to march. They've been in the wilderness. The wilderness is in fact a, a grave for a whole generation of Israel, uh, and when Moses exhorts them to arise and cross. It's a kind of resurrection. Uh, Israel's uh, march to the land and their entry into the land is a, is a kind of resurrection. They're coming out of the desert, which is a place of uh, place where you don't normally survive for 40 years. In fact, whole generation of Israel has not survived. They've left the bones of those of that generation in the wilderness, and now the Israel that's coming into the land is a risen Israel, a resurrected Israel that has risen out of the grave of the wilderness. And that's the Israel that's now going to encounter Sihon and Og. That's the Israel that's going to enter into the land and conquer it. So this is a thinking of a book on uh, on numbers by Dennis Olson. I mean, he says the, whole, the basic structure of the book of numbers is the death and, death and resurrection of Israel. The two censuses in the book of numbers, you have a census at the beginning, uh, the people who are in that census die in the wilderness, and then you have a second census at the end with almost equivalent numbers uh, Israel has died, Israel rises again, and you have a hint of that, I think, here in chapter two. It's that that resurrected Israel that's going to go into the land uh, and conquer it and bring life to the land.
1: We have clear um, reminders of the story of the exodus here with the hardening of the heart of the kings that are raised up against them. And there's a sense of continuity with the original events of the decreation of the plagues, the way in which the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And then in that hardening, Pharaoh um, persists to his own self, to his own destruction. And we're having something similar playing out here that um, should serve as a a sort of encouragement to Israel. They've seen this pattern play out before. They can see that this intransigence on the part of Argand and um, Sihon is Indicative of the Lord's hand at work, that these people are actually being um, led by the Lord, even in their opposition and the Lord's sovereignty within um, the king's heart, as we see in the um, Proverbs, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He moves it like the rivers of water. There's this um, assurance that the Lord can raise up someone like Pharaoh or someone like Og. And in raising them up, can use them as his instrument for his glory and also raise them up in order to bring them to destruction and to hand them over to his people. That, I think, is one of the ways in which reading this account or Israel hearing this account should have been able to see something of a a continuity and resonance between the original exodus and the conquest of the land. There is a a sort of chiasm that we see within the Pentateuch more generally, where the entrance into the land is described in ways that recall the original departure. And then there are specific details like this that heighten that sense of resonance so that the assurance of the Lord's character and work that they had on the other side of the Exodus, the other side of the wilderness experience, can be brought into their conquest of the land.
0: Yeah, just a couple of comments on on Sihon's reaction. First of all, the we talked about verse twenty five in the last episode uh, about the dread and fear that the Lord is going to put on the peoples, and then immediately they're uh, they're encountering Sihon. So verse twenty five talks about the trembling and the anguish of the peoples, uh, and then verse twenty six introduces Sihon, king of Heshbon. Uh, so he's presumably one of the kings, and his people is one of the people peoples that is frightened and in dread of Israel. And yet, when Israel offers this, these terms of peace, instead of uh, taking those terms, he resists. So, it's almost like the, his uh, aggressiveness is arising from his dread. It's not, it's not from confidence, but it's from fear. And then verse 30 also, the way that this is, the way, the way that this is said, Yahweh your God hardened his spirit. Um, the Hebrew could be translated, the, the, uh, Yahweh your God made his spirit fierce. Uh, and made his heart, heart heart hardened. So it's almost like the Lord is stoking up this kind of desperate confidence, this this confidence or this aggressiveness that's arising out of fear. And the Lord is, in a sense, giving Sihon over to the fierceness, uh, giving him over to his own fierceness, to his own to his own folly. That kind of terminology is used of Pharaoh also. That uh, the Lord glorifies his heart; it gives the uh, Pharaoh g- gains confidence. The language isn't just that the Lord is making him resistant. Oh, that's the effect of it, but He's making him resistant by giving him over to this kind of, uh, this kind of excessive confidence
2: in the face of Yahweh's power. Yeah, that seems very much to be the sense of the whole um, interaction with Pharaoh in the the Exodus, Peter. That um, God kind of strengthens is, is one of the terms used there and here. Strengthens His heart because. Humanly speaking, it was just an act of insanity to keep kind of resisting the Lord and and to keep going against Israel to the extent that in the Exodus the Egyptians were saying, "Come on, just just let them go," you know, and and so kind of God enabled Pharaoh and here Sihon to have a a, um, an overweening confidence, like a boldness that was really stupidity, but allowed these uh, evil kings to kind of act out their ungodly desires, which is quite frightening, really.
1: One of the things that David Foreman highlights in this connection is that it's precisely in the hardening of the the strengthening of the heart of Pharaoh that the Lord can really prove his might. Because if Pharaoh just buckled immediately, then the Lord's strength would have just been, uh, it wouldn't have been established in principle. Uh, The Lord's supremacy wouldn't have been established in principle. It would have just been a weak Pharaoh capitulating. And what we have through the plagues instead is Pharaoh, because his heart is so strong, he has to submit in principle or not at all to the Lord.
3: The parallels between Moses' negotiation with Pharaoh at first, almost sort a peaceful settlement, they could go three days into wilderness and, and sacrifice. And Moses also, you know, offer of peace to Sihon as well here. Um, that, of course, the Lord is going to prevent that from happening. But it's still kind of surprising that after you get at uh, the end of the last section, uh, rise up, you know, rise up, set out. Uh, begin the battle, and then all of a sudden you have a offer of peace to Sihon.
1: One of the things I think comes at, that comes out when we read this in the light of the previous part of the of chapter two is that when we're reading the story of the Exodus, when we're reading the story of the conquest, it's very easy to read it purely in terms of the Lord de- the Lord's dealing with His people. But when we've read the earlier part of chapter Two and considered the way that the Lord gave territory to to the Edomites to the Moabites and to others, what we can see maybe in this passage is that the Lord is dealing with um Sihon and the Amorites and other groups like like that in addition to dealing with israel it's not this story is not merely one about um, how the Lord is doing something for his people. Um, there is a story of on Sihon's side as well, um, presumably, or just as in the story of the Exodus, there's a story on, e. the story could be told from Egypt's perspective. And we don't maybe consider that enough, but Egypt, there was another possible way that things could have gone. Likewise with Sihon and others, there's no reason that that needed to happen in the way that it did. Um, And when we're reading this, maybe reading it in the light of the preceding part of the chapter, we can see the Lord um, dealing with these kingdoms and empires in ways not just occasioned by his people's presence, but as part of this broader ruling over the nations and setting their boundaries and giving them their times of habitation, etc., Yes. And all that then follows through um, prophetically,
2: doesn't it, Alistair, in that you've got distinct futures laid out for um, Edom, you know, and uh, for Elam and for Egypt and Assyria and and, and so on. Yeah, so the, now those um, futures are decreed to them by virtue of their interaction with Israel and and with God's people, but they're nevertheless distinct um, futures, and it, it's interesting to see all that play out.
3: That reminds me of uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah eighteen, I believe it is, where the Lord makes it clear that you know if 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 I say at any time to a nation, you know, turn and repent, uh, or, or no, it's it's I should look at it. I think it's um, you know, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna break you, I'm gonna destroy you. Um, and if that nation turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster. And the same way, if I say to any nation, I'm gonna build you up and prosper you, and you turn against me, I'm gonna I'm going to uh destroy you. And the interesting thing about that is it's not just about Israel, it's about any nation. And so I think Alser's point is well taken is that the Lord is dealing with all of these nations. This is an opportunity for repentance. Um And I think what we're going to see, of course, with uh, the Amorites and all the other Canaanites is that they've reached a place where they've been given over, you know, Romans 1 style uh, to their depravity, and they're not going to respond to these offers of peace.
0: One of the questions I had uh, lingering from our last episode that I didn't raise, it's raised here again, with both the Edomites and also with Sihon, Moses offers to purchase food with silver and also purchase water with silver uh, pass through the land and they're going to purchase these uh, necessities. My question is what happened to the manna? Uh, the manna doesn't cease until they cross over from uh, cross over the Jordan. We're told that explicitly the day that they cross over the Jordan into the land, the manna ceases and they begin to they begin to live off what the land produces. So it seems like there's still manna there. Is this, are we talking about just additional food that they're going to purchase or, uh, and how are we supposed to think about that? Is This kind of a, a proto entry into the land, which means they're going to have to find other food sources, even though the manna is still there, they're still kind of entering into the land. So there, again, an, another hint of this kind of liminal in-between space, they're between the water of the Zered and the water of the Jordan. Uh, They're also in this in-between space where man is still showing up every morning, and yet they're also purchasing food. Any thoughts on that? I had the same question and
3: also wondering, you know, where they got the money from. This is a lot of people. So what have they been doing for 40 years? Have they been, this is always an interesting question to me. What just, were they engaged in trade with other people? I mean, they weren't, they couldn't have been entirely isolated. So have they, have they traded with other people? Have they built up some wealth? Uh, do they have, where's where this money to pay for food and water uh, from all these places that they're passing through? I don't know if there's an answer to that. I just found it, it's kind of a fascinating question.
0: Surely some of it came from Egypt. But uh, I think the idea that they were encountering other peoples during their 40 years of uh, in the wilderness and, and trading with them. That's intriguing.
2: I mean, we could obviously posit if we wanted to, couldn't we? That um, had they been allowed to go through one of these um, countries, that that would kind of have, have marked the end of their um, journeys and that the man would have ceased. I mean, is that, a, is that a crazy idea? Are you suggesting
0: that if they had, like, for example, at Kadesh, if they had crossed over at Kadesh, then the man would have ceased at that point rather than what? Yeah, the manna was already there when they got to Kadesh. Is that is that the kind of thing you're suggesting? Yeah, yeah, it would seem so. It what because the the manna is a wilderness food, and it's not a land food. But that again, it it feels like we're in some kind of in between space where the wilderness food is still there, and in a sense, they're still in the wilderness, even though they're in territories that are uh, governed by kings and have cities that they're conquering. Uh, and they are engaged in conquest, you're still not quite into the land. And so you have this overlap of the two food sources.
3: Hmm. Yeah, but there's also the implication that this is the beginning of the conquest of the promised land. So uh, the uh, Sihon, the Amorite, uh, he's going to be taken, verse 24, and his land. Uh, And so crossing over to fight with uh, Sihon is like crossing over into the promised land, which is also somewhat surprising because uh, Moses is not supposed to be set his foot on the promised land. But this, as we know, the Transjordan area is going to be part of the promised land for Reuben, Gad, and a half tribe of Manasseh. So in, in some sense, they're not yet into the promised land crossing the Jordan, but in another sense they are. So this is something of a transitional time.
0: Yeah. 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 Moses', Moses continuing presence is another sign of that liminal in-between situation because, as you say, he's not going into the land, and yet uh, he's in part what will become part of the land. It's
1: probably worth thinking about the way in which we consider the land because certainly from my understanding, the Transjordan is not the promised land proper, it's part of the land of Israel, it's part of their territory, but there are two and a half tribes who live outside of the promised land proper, and so the crossing of the Jordan is into the promised land, but there's this broader territory, and that's conquered at this point, and it's worth thinking about what is the status of this territory, there's certainly tensions that arise that we see later on, between the Transjordanian tribes of Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and, for instance, the altar that they set up. But it does seem that some distinction is drawn between within the territory of Israel, between the promised land proper, and some parts that are outside of the promised land proper. And we also see, in Israel's later history, expansion into territories that, exceed the boundaries of the promised land, but also ways in which the boundaries of the promised land extend further than their typical bounds of habitation. And so understanding exactly how Israel's existence within the land and the boundaries of that existence correspond with and how we're supposed to understand that in relation to the promised land proper is always an interesting question, and especially because it has such bearing upon the internal relations between the tribes. Yeah, it seems like you have something analogous in the
0: way that, for example, Israel is organized in the wilderness, because you have the sanctuary with a courtyard around it. And then the war camp is another, another semi-holy space. There are certain things you're not supposed to do in the war camp because the Lord is present there. And then there's something beyond the war camp. Uh, there's some hints that the some members of the mixed multitude are on the outskirts of the camp rather than toward the center and you have other structures like that where you have uh, a central section a section that's related but not fully part and then a, and then a, a, a section that's further out so you, the land the transjordan and then the gentile lands around them or you could even refine that you know there's certain gentile lands that have close contact with israel and then the wider world outside but it, it seems like you have something analogous um with what you're saying, Alistair, that to, to those kinds of structures uh, that, you know, those, those kinds of mappings go back or ultimately to the original creation where you've got a garden in the midst of the land of Eden, which is in the midst of the world. And you have something like those different 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 uh, environments with the Transjordan being kind of a transitional space. Well,
3: maybe this is an obvious point, but it seems like Israel's claim to this territory, this Trans Jordan territory, was a consequence of Sihon and Og's refusal to cooperate with them. It didn't have to happen. Uh, it didn't have to be part of their, their territory. Uh, if Sihon and Og would have cooperated, they would have just gone up and then crossed the Jordan into the promised land.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a good point that uh, they do offer them terms of peace. And in the event that that's not going to work, but uh, there's the, they could have been just like Edom or Moab or Ammon. That's what Moses proposes at the beginning, but Sihon won't have it. Uh, The battle itself, which takes place at Jahaz, uh, according to verse 32 of chapter 2, the battle itself is recounted in verses 33 to 36, which has an interesting structure to it. It begins with, Yahweh our God gave him over to us. Verse thirty six ends with, Yahweh our God delivered all to us. Everything that Sihon had was given. So first of all, Sion himself, and then Sion and his people and his lands and so on. But then in between we have these a series of clauses that all are second person, a first person plural. We defeated him. We captured his cities. We left no survivor. We took the animals. There was no city that was too high for us. So you have this. How do they get the land? Well, Yahweh gives it to them, but they receive this gift only by fighting uh, Sihon and actually capturing the land. So there's this kind of interplay of divine gift and human uh, human action that's uh, theologically significant. One of the things that we we get here that's uh, w- one of the background things that we learn from Numbers rather than uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, they're beginning the conquest, but in Deut- in in Numbers rather. Uh, the beginning of the conquest is immediately preceded by the death of, of Aaron the priest and the installation of Eliezer as the high priest. Uh, and that's theologically significant, because in with especially within the context of Numbers, where you have an ex, a very long passage about the cities of refuge. And the cities of refuge um, are places where man killers stay until the high priest dies. So then the death of the high priest is the beginning of release that's not mentioned here in Deuteronomy it's the death of that previous generation which would include Aaron that is the that's the turning point uh but it uh, but that numbers background is important and i think that it's i think it's the case that um numbers does not use the terminology of kerem warfare the the war of utter destruction uh as is used here in verse 34 numbers recounts uh, the battles with Sihon and Og but it doesn't recount it doesn't describe this particular method of, uh, of uh, conquering
2: and, uh, and destroying Sihon's kingdom. So what exactly do you take um, Kerem to kind of consist of and, and to amount to in practice, uh, Peter, or either, any, any of you?
0: Well, I think the, the rules uh, that are set out are in Deuteronomy 20, and you have a couple of different forms of warfare. And, and they're following, uh, in, in Deuteronomy 2, Israel is following these rules pretty, pretty uh, directly. There's an offer of peace. That's Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. That's what they've done to Sihon. And if the, if the city agrees to the terms of peace, then there's not a battle. But then verse 12, if it does not make peace but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men uh, with the edge of the sword, the women and children, the animals, uh, they're in the city. And then it makes a further distinction. Uh, verse 15, thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far but not to the cities of those nations there that are nearby and that's when it brings up the harem, which includes a, a war of utter destruction that uh, in the example that we have in Deuteronomy 2 it includes the slaughter of women and children uh and uh, the then and the uh reservation of animals and plunder so there's a, a several different types of warfare that are being described there in Deuteronomy 20 but i like i i take the last one in like verses uh Sixteen through eighteen to describe the the kind of war, kind of warfare that they're engaged in. That's described as harem. You shall not leave alive anything that breathes. As Deuteronomy two indicates, uh, would would have it that doesn't include the animals. You're talking about human beings are not to be left alive.
2: Right, right. So this was effectively with, within the land. Then, so with the Deuteronomy twenty provisions for um, warfare within the land. Israel didn't really profit from this in a in a sense this wasn't the kind of thing that a foreign nation could do if it was running short of funds and needed to kind of replenish it couldn't just go round and and uh, plunder plunder various kind of nearby cities and take their wealth and so on because all that wealth was kind of to be I take it devoted to the lord in 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 some way it's um, uh, it's not entirely clear to me that that's the way to put it together. But if you think of um, Jericho, uh, I think that the term cherem appears there, or at least the verb appears there. And um, the gold and silver, at least, when everything else has been burnt, goes into the treasury of the Lord. And I, I take that to be consistent with the whole notion of 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 that so it, it became holy in the same way as you could devote land in Leviticus, uh, I think, I think, chapter 27, you could devote land to the priesthood. Um, so through warfare, um, that you know what was taken became holy and then went into priestly um circulation rather than among the commoners, uh, as far as I can see.
1: You can see also cases like Achan who takes forbidden items that really are dedicated to the Lord or to destruction and come under the same judgment as the um, cities from which they took. Um, Might also think of someone like Rahab who moves the other direction, someone who's dedicated to destruction yet through conversion is um, marked out among the people of Israel. And so there is not an absolute situation here where all the canaanites were destroyed for the benefit of the israelites the israelites themselves are subject to some of the um the dangers of heron warfare we see something similar of course in the passover where it's not that israel is completely immune to the judgment that comes at the time of the passover they have to be marked out by the blood of the lamb on the doorposts in order to be saved. And so that judgment, as it were, comes upon, they are subject to the same judgment if they do not have the blood on the doorposts. They are subject to the same judgment if they align themselves with the Canaanite cities or take from them things that are dedicated to the Lord. Yeah, that's that's a
3: great point, that they're liable to the same kind of uh, judgment if they behave in that way you might think back the uh the rebellion the quorum dathan and biram and uh, the uh not only were the men but the women and children were swallowed up because of their rebellion um arnold in his commentary makes a verbal connection interesting verbal connection here with verse 30 uh sihan king of heshbon was unwilling to let us pass by him uh and that meant he comes under this judgment. uh, And he connects that up with the Israelites. The same kind of language is used in, what is it? Deuteronomy 1, 26, you were unwilling to go up and rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And look what happens to that generation. uh, Back in chapter two, verse 15, the hand of the Lord Yahweh was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had all perished. So Israel has already experienced uh something like this. Uh they're liable to the same kind of punishment and now Sihon is also unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction and rebels and so he gets he gets uh the punishment as well.
0: I think James you're you're right to raise the question because the, the it's not clear to me uh that what the what the consistent pattern is for harem because you have um, Deuteronomy 20, the the passages that I read, everything that breathes sounds pretty absolute and would seem to include animals. If we compare it to uh, Deuteronomy 2 and 3, then it looks like the animals are spared. But then you have cases in in the uh, in First uh, Samuel 13, for example, when 15 rather when uh, Saul is supposed to be carrying out uh, a war of utter destruction against the Amalekites, uh, and he gets into trouble for sparing the animals. Of course, he spared the king too, which he shouldn't have done but even sparing the animals to dedicate them to the lord that was his excuse that seems to be a violation of the ban uh, maybe you can put those together by saying that the amalekites were in a special category uh, and they were certainly in a special category the lord had, uh, had a vendetta against the amalekites from exodus on but uh, exactly what's being done in each of these cases uh, and and how the rules are being applied is not it's not clear what the consistent pattern is cuz just on the face of it, you could you could read the episode of Jericho back into Deuteronomy 2 and say the booty is taken and dedicated to the Lord. But that's not what it sounds like in verse 35. We took the animals as our booty, to spoil the cities which we had captured. So it sounds like Israel is is benefiting from that. If you're if you're taking the the Jericho paradigm, then certainly they're not. But um I it it looks like they're it looks to me on the face of it like they're somewhat different applications of
1: of, of harem rules. We have something similar, of course, in Numbers 31, where there is this um, complete war upon the um, killing of all those who are involved with the events at Baal Peor, with Baal Peor, but that killing all of the women who have known a man, but keeping the women who have not yet known a man um, and killing all the men, seems like the something similar to the provisions for harem warfare but much of the chapter is given over to the division of the spoil among the war camp and among the congregation more generally so it would seem as you're saying peter that there are more complicated rules that apply in some of these cases especially when we're dealing as in this case and also in the case of the war against the midianites with people who are outside the land proper yes
2: that that seems to be the the key distinction to my mind that kind of you can take the plunder when they're outside the land, um but within the land, it's something different and it it, yeah. it has to go completely to the lord
0: yeah that um that does seem to be the pattern that 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 would uh, that makes theological sense, I think so uh, israel Israel conquers Sihon subjects Sihon to the harem. Uh, the beginning of chapter three, we have a parallel episode. It's a much shorter account, but it's Basically, the same thing happens with Og King of Bashan. Uh, he initiates a battle. He comes out against Israel. Uh, the Lord delivers, gives Og into their hands. Uh, you have the same kind of interaction between the Lord's gift of Og and his people and his land into the hands of Israel and Israel's battle with him. Those those two things are operating together. The thing that's, that uh, stands out in the account of Og, it's very much a, a repetition of the account of Sihon. The big thing that stands out is just the uh, the reference to cities. Uh, they seized cities from Sihon, but they're also seizing cities from Og. And we're told specifically that they're seizing 60 cities. That's chapter 3, verse 4. And then the cities are described as being cities uh, with high walls, gates, and bars. So they're well-fortified cities uh, as well as unwalled towns. They're taking 60 of those well-fortified cities, it appears, uh, and uh, reset, resettling into them, so uh, that's part we're going to be part of the conquest. They enter into the land; uh, they're going to inherit all kinds of infrastructure that the Lord has, uh that the Canaanites have put there. That the Lord is giving over to them: cities and vineyards and aqueducts and water supplies, wells. All this stuff is already there, and they're inheriting all that. They're doing that with the territory of Og also, but it's also the emphasis on the on the strength of the cities high walls, gates, and bars, and yet the Lord conquers them. It shows Israel at a, as a, at a military disadvantage. They're invading a land that has fortress cities all over it, uh, where people can retreat and they can hold out. You know, you'd know, you think that this would take an awful long time if you're going to have people holding out in a city with high walls and bars and gates. You're going to have to besiege them, and they're going to have to just a war of attrition against the city like that. But Israel seems to conquer these pretty rapidly, uh, and it just shows the uh no matter how much of a disadvantage Israel is in militarily, because the Lord is fighting for them, the Lord is their warrior, that's what he's promised to be that's that's what's that's what uh, is new with this new generation the war the Lord is now fighting for Israel uh and he's and he's going to uh take these cities no matter what kind of defenses are put up. How long? Is this a year or two? What's,
3: what's going on here? I understand theologically why it's compressed because it's the Lord who's given these kids and these territories into their hands. Um, and that needs to be emphasized. But I'm just curious how long this took. I, I, maybe there's no answer to that, uh, but there's got to be an answer to that just looking at the various chronologies here. I
0: mean, well, we've got the chronological marker right at the beginning of Deuteronomy. Or Moses is speaking to them in the fortieth year. Take that as the fortieth year after the Exodus. That's Deuteronomy one three, and then there's a reference to the thirty eight years early in chapter two. I'm not finding that reference now, but there was a, there was a reference to, and another reference to forty years in verse seven. So it seems like these things have happened in a, a relatively short time, uh, if they have. They're wandering in the wilderness, and then from the time they left Kadesh until the time they get to these battles, that's a 38-year period. So it looks like it's about to a two-year, two-year conquest of the Transjordan.
3: Yeah, that's helpful. That makes, that makes sense. It just it seems like when you read it, it happens in a matter of days, and, um, and maybe that's for the logical effect.
0: Yeah, it is a kind of lightning strike, and again, especially in the light of what kind of defenses Aug at least has. Uh, and, and and Sihon too Sihon has walled cities of course this part of, part of the emphasis, part of the reason for emphasizing that is that that's what discouraged the people when they first entered the land at Kadesh they went in they saw that there were these walled cities and they didn't think they could take them and now these walled cities are like nothing before um before the lord so um but uh yeah that it, it looks like a lightning strike uh and uh, the lord is giving them uh, these these territories and their defenses in a pretty pretty rapid invasion. We have this little aside about Og that I wanted to I, again something that came up in the previous episode that I I didn't pursue, but we have a little aside about Og and his bed in verse eleven. Abation was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. His bedstead was an iron bedstead. Rabba of the it's in Rabbah of the Ammon uh, sons of Ammon. Its length is nine cubits. Its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. So, uh, there's the the size of the bedstead or the couch is an indication that um, Og is a giant. And uh, Israel is, in defeating Og, Israel proves themselves to be a people, a nation of giant killers. But uh, the reference to Rephaim here in verse 11 is intriguing. There are a couple of references to Rephaim in the previous chapter. Certain territories had belonged to the Rephaim, and now they belong to different peoples. That's part of the encouragement that Moses is giving. Other peoples have defeated the Rephaim. Israel can defeat the Rephaim too. And now they have defeated a king who is the last of the Rephaim. I discovered in preparing for the podcast that the Rephaim, uh, there are references to, uh, seem to be to the same group or people in Ugaritic texts. At least the word Rapha is used. The word Rapha can refer to, I think, to a Canaanite or maybe Ugaritic deity. Uh, but there's this, this debate about what uh, the Raphaim are in those Ugaritic texts. So whether they're they're gods, or whether they're like great heroes, giants, or some combination, like they're they're deified heroes, uh, heroes that went to the grave and have now been deified. But there's this overtone of dread and terror. They 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 strike terror into people, and it made me wonder if we're to take this as a reference to. The people of that Og's, Og's territory, and the people of Canaan, are somehow dependent on the powers of the dead. I think it wouldn't be uncommon, wouldn't be unusual for ancient pagans to have some kind of cult of the dead. Uh, do they have a cult of the dead so they can call on these these uh, deceased powers that have been deified to fight for them? Is that what the was that what the uh, uh, is that the connotation of Refaim? And it, it, if that's the case, then it seems like. The conquest takes on this much more takes on much more the character of a spiritual war, um, or even a harrowing of hell, that Joshua's entering into a harrowing of the grave. He's entering into the land, leading the people into the land. And it's a land that's under the control, the dominion somehow of these uh, these dead kings and the powers of those dead kings. That may be stretching Rephaim, and they it may just be a, a people name, but the apparent use in in Ugaritic text makes me wonder what uh uh, what what were to take from that term?
2: Yeah, it has been suggested, Peter, that the um, bed of iron is actually referring to a, a kind of coffin, um, like a tomb of some description. I don't know how well that pans out, but if there is this connection between the Rephaim and and, and the dead, um, that, that would then be quite interesting. So did you
3: know that there was this later Jewish tradition that Og is... Uh, the last of one of the uh, Andaluvian giants, the Nephilim, and that he survived the flood by sitting on top of Noah's Ark. <laughs> oh, I didn't, hadn't heard that. Yeah, and that Noah had constructed uh, the Ark, you know, or dug out, I guess, in, in the Ark so he could feed him get a side of the Ark. <laughs> and that Og promised to be Noah's servant after uh, they landed, stuff like that. That's pretty crazy.
1: We do have references to the Rephaim as Nephilim in um, Numbers 13, for instance, um, where they're described as um, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim.
3: Well, and that connection, there, uh, also in line with what Peter just said about the possibility of this being associated with some cult of the dead, also makes you think about the, uh, the Peluvian corruption of humanity. So Og is this guy like the old uh, sons of God who saw the daughters of and led
2: the evil that eventually brought up God's judgment on the whole world. Yes. I mean, it, it does say, doesn't it? In um, So like we, we don't have to go along with this slightly strange um, way in which Og could survive the flood um, because it does talk about uh I'm trying to find it now in Genesis six where um the Nephilim uh multiplied uh when they went into the sons of um uh, the daughters of, of the children of men. Um and afterwards, um it it, it says as well. So it, it's not just um it's not just a pre-flood um occurrence, this uh corruption with the Nephilim. So yeah. Yeah,
0: I, I like the way you stated that, James. You said uh it's a slightly strange account of how Og survives the flood yeah that's a classic british understatement there <laughs> yeah anyway after these two conquests they, they've they conquered sihon they've conquered Og. this is in the territory above moab and ammon there it's the transjordan territory that again from maps i've looked at uh, stretches from uh, about midway down the uh the the dead sea all the way up to the sea of galilee it's a pretty large piece of territory from what i've been able to tell Uh, And once they've conquered this territory by by defeating these kings, Moses distributes the land, and we have uh, verses twelve through seventeen of chapter three. We have this uh, we have this uh, distribution scene, which is going to be it's it's the whole the whole chapter is kind of like a a small scale Joshua. There's a conquest. There are a couple of conquest stories, Sion and Og, and then the land is distributed, and the boundaries of the land are laid out, and different tribes inherit these different boundaries of the land. So the not only is the conquest beginning, but the distribution of the land is also beginning. The account of the, the account of the distribution of these territories is a little convoluted, but there seems to be a two different uh two different descriptions of the uh, of the same territory. So verses 12 through 14, uh, it seemed like you're starting in the south, Reuben, Gad, and then half tribe of Manasseh, and then you uh, kind of go in reverse. I guess that's 12 and 13, and then you kind of go in reverse. Verse 14 starts with a specific person in the, the tribe of Manasseh, then you go to the Reubenites and Gadites. So it seems like a somewhat chiastically structured, first you go from south to north, and then you you cover the same territory in slightly different terms from the north to the south. That seems to be what the how the description of the of the land is, is being organized. There, there are a couple of... Uh, short sections that are uh, appended to this story of travel and conquest. They come to the edge of the land. They've begun the conquest in the Transjordan. Now it's time to prepare for the entry into the land and the conquest. And there are several things that Moses does in order to prepare. One of them is to give instructions to those tribes that are settling on the east side of the Jordan. That's Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. And his instruction to them is that they are not going to settle down permanently in their territories until they've crossed over and fought with their brothers. They're not to take rest in their territories unless, until, they've happened, until they've brought their brothers rest on the other side of the land. And then they can come back. They leave their women and children and livestock in the Transjordan as they go into the land. Presumably, there are some men that remain be- behind to guard those territories. So that's one thing that happened. And then uh, Moses is also appointing Joshua. This is The appointment of Joshua is not completed until the very end of uh, end of Deuteronomy, but uh, he's commanding Joshua to take the land. He's, Joshua has seen what has happened to Sion and Og. This has given him a glimpse of what's on the other side of the Jordan. There's this typological connection between what Israel has done in the Transjordan and what's going to happen once they cross, uh, and Joshua is leading them in that. So um, he commands Joshua to be without fear, to trust the Lord. The Lord is going to be fighting with them, and they're going to be able to wipe out the other tribes as uh, the Lord has wiped out these two peoples.
2: Yeah, something that I noticed going through this um, passage previously was that the um, the word that's used in um, the Amorites strengthening his heart, um, the Amorite king, the kind of Pharaoh-like way in which he's God strengthens his heart. That throughout Joshua is the same imperative that's given to Joshua. You know that he's to um, to uh, in the kind of the often repeated, "Be strong and have courage." Um, And there seems a very interesting kind of symmetry to that, to the way um, that Joshua is to be uh, strong in the Lord and to have confidence in the Lord, um, contrasted with the way in which the Amorite king was. Uh, kind of in in folly, God kind of uh, made him be be strong in, in his own might um, to his destruction.
0: The chapter ends with uh, Moses uh, turning to the Lord and asking the Lord to one last time to allow him to enter the land. We've been told in the beginning of uh, Deuteronomy and in the account of the rebellion at Kadesh, the Lord, uh, Moses says that it was on account of Israel that he wasn't allowed to enter the land. We saw this uh that uh, episode we've read about that episode in numbers uh, there's another episode in numbers where uh Moses is actually said to be excluded from the land because he doesn't honor God when he's striking the rock but here uh, Moses tries one last time to plead for the plead for the um, privilege not only of seeing the land but of crossing over to see the land uh, that's verse twenty five I pray let me I pray cross over and see the fair land, the good land that's beyond the Jordan. The Lord's response is, uh, you can see it, but not cross over. So he grants uh, part of the request, but he's going to have to see it at a distance. There's an interesting pun in verse 26, which seems to be the center of of a chiasm in this exchange. The word that's translated as angry is the same word for crossing over. Moses wants to cross over. He's told he can't cross over in the center. The Lord is cross uh, with Israel. That's what uh, Dwayne Christensen suggests. Uh, we translated that way to, to capture the pun in the Hebrew. Uh, the Lord is uh, goes against or crosses over against or overwhelms Moses with his rejection. Uh, and Moses is going to be left in a situation where he's seeing the land, uh, but he's not going to be able to enter it. And a, a couple of things that that links up with, I think. Uh, one is that Moses is put in a position of Abraham, Abraham also is given this vision of the land and uh he looks to it looks in every direction and he sees the land that his children are going to inherit Moses is put in a similar position seeing the land uh you can insert Hebrews 11 here none of them uh received the land that they were that they were hoping for Abraham was a wanderer in the land but he never inherited it Moses didn't inherit the land uh they all uh were waiting for something that was only given that only with us would they, that's how Hebrews 11 ends, that they only with us would they inherit this land. So there's that um, per, uh, that uh, perspective faith, or Moses is hoping for the inheritance of the land. He's not going to see it in his own lifetime. But it also occurs to me that there's a kind of typological thing going on here that you have uh, Moses does not get into the land, Moses doesn't lead the conquest. Uh, and you can extrapolate from that that there's a kind of limit. There's a limit to what Moses and the Mosaic order does. And I'm thinking in terms of kind of Pauline theology, uh, where um, Moses is a schoolmaster to get us to Christ. Moses is a tutor that leads Israel to the border of the promised land. But you need a Joshua to enter into the promised land and to conquer it. So that contrast between Moses and Joshua seems to be a a preview of the larger contrast between old and new Covenant. Uh, and there's even a, a perhaps a typological significance in the fact that he's excluded from the land on the account of Israel. That's what he, that's what he says, a couple of times here. That um, it was because of Israel that he wasn't able to enter into the land. Partly that means it's because of Israel's rebellion that that he's not able to enter the land. But there might also be this hint that he's he's in some sense bearing as a member of the older generation, he's bearing the curse along with that older generation so that this other generation can enter in. So he he bears the, the curse of exclusion so that uh, is, the new Israel can enter into the land. So again, a kind of old new covenant pattern there uh, and uh, almost a substitutionary idea with Moses suffering the curse that uh, Israel, suffered suffers the curse along with Israel so that a
2: new Israel can receive the promise. That's a fascinating point, Peter, and and goes very well with what you were saying the other week about um, how Moses' death kind of almost stands in the backdrop of all that's to play out play out um, in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, obviously, uh, the Lord, as it were, kind of offered after the golden the golden calf to begin again with Moses and to make a, a new nation um, uh, out of him, and in a sense you know we've been thinking uh, about different ways in which things could have gone in a sense moses could have entered um with that nation descended um from him but but didn't and and yeah chose to suffer re- reproach as he did in egypt kind of with the people of god and uh and I, I suppose continuing it we could even say that in christ moses does enter the promised land insofar as he's sort of seen on the mount of transfiguration with uh, Jesus. But insofar as he here bears the curse, he is excluded. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of The Theopolis
0: Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis,